Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are here uh, with someone very special today from the Reading League, which if you're not sure what the Reading League is, it's a national education nonprofit led by educators and reading experts. They are dedicated to promoting knowledge to really support the future of literacy education and I like the way their website says it, so I'm just going to read it. Accelerate the global movement toward reading instruction rooted in science. Melissa, how powerful is that? <laughs> yeah, I love, I love the Reading League. I love Laura's podcast. I love listening to her podcast. I love their courses that I'm excited to take. So there's just so much good stuff coming out of the Reading League around the science of reading. And I just love how they are like... they. They're like, we're all in this together. Let's, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> let's move this work ahead. So I'm really excited to talk to Laura today. Oh, great. Yeah. So Laura, welcome to the podcast. You're one of the pioneers from the Reading League. Welcome and tell us about yourself. Oh, thank you so much. I'm just really delighted to be here. And thanks for those kind things that you said about the Reading League. Um, yes, so the Reading League is a relatively new organization, but it's really gained traction out there. And I think it is because of what you said, what it's, you know, our mission and this, this, this ethos that we're all in this together. Um, so I've been with the Reading League for about a year and a half as their national director. And my role is really about kind of expanding us um, through state chapters, for example, and through networking with other organizations around the country. Um, And for in doing things like this podcast to kind of elevate the, you know, elevate the profile of the Reading League. And also really until until COVID, um, you know, traveling to conferences and that type of thing to just kind of help people understand who we are and what we do. Um, so, and I've been, you know, I've been in education for a really long time. I've been in education for, well, I don't even want to say, I'll just say it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I am a woman of a certain age. Um <laughs> And, but it's been a really, you know, when I reflect back, it's been an incredibly rewarding career, really. I started out as a teacher and I moved into administration and I moved into um, staff development. And I had, I've had opportunities to really travel the country and internationally speaking on, on, you know, uh, high quality reading instruction and what does that look like? Uh, And also, um, you know, I've, I've had an opportunity to work in the business world. I, I was the vice president of professional development for a nonprofit called the Roland Reading Foundation. I was the uh, chief academic officer for professional development at the Highlights Education Group. I'm guessing your listeners probably know Highlights. Everybody knows Highlights. Oh, yeah. yeah, Highlights is pretty famous. Yeah, <laughs> Timber Toes or Goofus and Gallant. I always say, you know, if you've ever been in a doctor, in a pediatrician's office, yep. you yeah. know. <laughs> uh, so those were, you know, I've just had opportunities to work in kind of different fields and different arenas, but my true love and my true passion is early literacy. And I always kind of think about what I want to do is play whatever role I can to to advance this this understanding of evidence-aligned instruction that can really make a difference for our students and can help our students become literate citizens of the 21st century, right? Not just to be competent, readers and writers, but to thrive and to flourish and to live a literate life, you know, to, to just be able to 
to uh, to flourish in that in the in illiterate life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. I mean, I feel like that's so comprehensive. Like a literate life is not just about sitting and reading a book. It's, it's much more than that. And so we want to, to open those doors for, for all students. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here. We are honored that you're taking the time to talk with us. Um, I'm always a little bit starstruck by our guests and I'm like, oh, we get to talk to the reading link today. So thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, it's, it's just a pl- It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, I, love you. pod- I love your podcast. I love your podcast. Thank you. Well, we'll, we'll give you're, you time you're, to- very, you're very genuine. You're very authentic. And I really appreciate that about you. Well, thank you. Thank we, you. We, we, try, we just try to be ourselves and, you know, n- nothing fancy. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of chicks sitting around talking. Exactly. Um, so tell us a little bit about, let's start with the Reading League. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you do there? And how does the mission that I shared earlier and that you shared a little bit about mm-hmm. play into everything that you do at the Reading League? Like for those of for those listeners who are listening and have either never heard of the Reading League or maybe just heard it mentioned, mm-hmm. tell us about the impact that you're having on literacy education. Right. So, um, so it's very exciting, and I think I mentioned this, you know, just a few minutes ago. How really, you know, the Reading League has really become a, a preeminent organization in advancing evidence-aligned instruction. And we do this in several ways. Um, one of the ways, is, like I talked about, is this, you know, kind of moving into the national sphere and becoming a go-to organization for people who are interested in evidence-aligned instruction. Um, and I mentioned the part that I'm playing in that. We also offer professional development. And, you know, when we when COVID hit, we kind of pivoted and developed a um, Um, an online academy, which is designed to have knowledge blocks to really build teachers' knowledge in foundational understanding of the science of reading, phonemic awareness, dyslexia, and there's other, um, you know, phonics, there's other knowledge blocks being built. And the idea behind that is that, you know, kind of block by block, teachers can build their understanding of evidence-aligned instruction. And these are very special, this online academy, because they're, you know, two and a half hour blocks, which is very palatable, you know, in a virtual environment, but mm-hmm. they're small groups. So the design is not to have just, you know, information relayed, but to have knowledge built. Um, so that's part of what we do. Um, we also have professional development engagements with different districts where, again, until COVID, um, you know, the, the work was being done in schools, but now it's being done virtually. And that includes, you know, this idea that it takes, it takes, a, it takes years really to transform practice. And we have to, you know, kind of start by looking at where we are now. You know, where do we want to be? What's our data say? Where do we want to be? How do we build teachers' understanding and knowledge about those best practices? And then how do we implement those and then continually cycle back and, you know, check what we're doing, check it against the data? Um, so that kind of support, you know, over time is something that we are really committed to. Um, we also have, we have a, um, a, TV show that's going to launch. I don't know if you saw that on social media, but we have a no, that's TV fun. show. Yes, it's called Dusty and Dot, and it's um, it's just this lovely, charming uh, duo. Uh, Dusty, uh, excuse me, Dot is a is a young lady, and Dusty's her 
dog friend. And it's really about, you know, it's a children's show to build, um, to build kind of alphabetic knowledge. And it's just, it's going to be lovely. The other thing we're really trying to do right now is, is help support this universal understanding around the science of reading. You know, we've seen, and I'm sure you see this as well, that as this phrase, the science of reading, becomes more elevated in the public sphere, you know, and thank goodness, right, for people like Emily Hanford, who have really elevated the conversation, and thank goodness for the podcasts like yours and mine and others, you know, that are getting out there and really spreading this this knowledge but we also see when that happens, you know, a couple of things could possibly happen when it becomes, you know, more of a buzz is that people may start kind of conscripting it, right? And labeling product products with, we do the science of reading. Oh, right? yes. Oh. You know, we see <laughs> Just that like I, That reminds me of back in the day where everything, I common mean, I still line. think everything is labeled <laughs> common core line. Research, oh, yes. <laughs> research-based. I'm like. I what know. does all that mean? <laughs> well, and I remember yeah. back when everything was stamped, you know, um, five essential elements. Yes. You know, that yes, was like yes. a big thing. And then it was common course, standards aligned, you know. Now it's, we're science of reading, you know. Yeah. And I, I saw uh, some packaging the other day and it said explicit systematic instruction. And I'm like, no, you're really not. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. kind of want to take a Sharpie <laughs> and cross that up. Yeah. But, so we have but, to be, learn, learn to be critical consumers. We do. And I think that's a really great point. It's all about, and that, that's why we at the Reading League are so devoted to knowledge building. You know, we're not going to give you a list of programs, for example, that are, you know, buy these programs or don't buy these programs. What we really want to do is build your understanding so that when it comes time to choosing resources, you are equipped. And to that end, we have, um, for example, on our website, we have a consumer's guide, you know, a criterion checklist that people can use when they're looking at programs. But even broader than that, what we're trying to do is develop this, we're calling it a defining movement. And we're saying, look, you know, the science of reading is a buzzword. It's out there. People are jumping all over it. But let's let's arrive at a common definition. And so we have a, a website, which is whatisthescienceofreading.org, which I encourage everybody to go on. And please uh, just just sign up to join the movement. It doesn't, it's not cost, it doesn't cost you anything. No. Um, it's just join the movement and say, yeah, I'm committed to this. And then start using, you know, the definition. And what we've tried to do is distill this down into a very you know, uh, short, understandable definition. The science of reading is a vast interdisciplinary body of scientifically based research about reading and issues related to reading and writing. That's it, right, for the definition. And then we go into um, the rationale behind it. What are the, res- what are the multiple fields of research? Um, and then every month we're going to to layer on to that. So I encourage people to check it out. We have a we have a preamble that basically says this is what we believe. You know, we believe in a future where the collective focus on applying the science of reading through teacher and leader preparation, classroom application, and community engagement will elevate and transform every community, every nation through the power of literacy. It's beautifully, beautifully done. I wanted to mention too that this wasn't something that we did just kind of, you know, sitting in the Reading League, um, you know, offices. We brought together 
stakeholders from other nonprofits, from the business world, from uh, higher ed, from the ranks of teachers, from administrators. So this has really truly been a partnered effort to get this definition out. Um, and so that's part of what we're doing right now too, is just say, look, let's, let's rally behind this, you know, let's rally behind this. Mm-hmm. Laura, I know you can't give us like <laughs> all of the knowledge about this on our short podcast today, but I'm wondering, like I have in my head um, from one of Emily Hanford's podcasts where mm-hmm. someone said like, well, your science is not my science, right? Like, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering like what, like, if you could give a very brief <laughs> recap of like, well, what does that mean to be yeah. you know, the science evidence-based or the science? Mm-hmm. What are yeah. we talking about there? Right. So, so I think, you know, one of the things that, that I always reflect back on is that when people say, well, it's your science and, you know, not my science, I always go back to, okay, well, what, what are, what's required, right, to be, to, to call yourself scientifically based? And so I think we have to look at, you know, the studies. Are the studies experimental or are they quasi-experimental? Um, is there a replication of the study? Is the publication of the study in a peer-reviewed journal? And one of the things that I find is that we in, in education, I mean, I think about myself in my undergraduate program, I didn't have any coursework in this, in understanding what makes high-quality research and what isn't. And so, if we as educators can understand the required components to be a scientifically, to be in a high quality um, study, that's going to help us weed out what we call scientifically aligned mm-hmm. or scientifically based um, and not. And, you know, when I uh, share with teachers, a lot of times I just pull out this, I'm sure you all have seen this, I think it's right here somewhere, uh, <laughs> Oh, shoot, I can't find it right now. But it's the, it's the Stanovich Guide, you know, which is using research and reason in education. I think you've all, we've all seen that, and I use it quite a bit. It's basically kind of a, a really a go-to guide. Sorry, I can't find it. Oh, here it is. Okay. <laughs> it's always is. when you need it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's called Using Research and Reason in Education. It's published, it was published back in 2003. But it's basically how teachers can use scientifically-based research to make curricular and instructional decisions. It's a downloadable resource. It's very handy. We have a link to it on our website in our resources tab. And it's very understandable, again, for those of us, when we came up in our teacher prep program, we didn't have an understanding of, you know, uh, quasi-experiment or, you know, um, replicable studies, peer-reviewed, sample size, all those things that, that really help us weed through what is the science. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that kind of give you an oh, idea? Of what I'm, yeah. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought it would for sure. Mm-hmm. And so follow-up question to that. I'm wondering, like what kinds of, over the years, Lara, what have you seen, what kinds of things in classrooms, have you seen change based on the science? Like things that we thought were the right way to teach yeah, everything. Yeah, right, right. And now we're like, well, actually, there's no science behind that. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Maybe well, we need to change our minds. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Laura. Oh, no, I agree. That's what I was thinking, too, is there are so many, like, things out there. And I remember being in undergrad and even in my master's program and just feeling very confused because there was so much to consume. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I struggled to know what was reliable and what wasn't reliable. And it's, I think I struggle with the fact that it's taken me 
over half of my career to figure out what is reliable and what's not reliable. And I just feel sad and uh, about all the kids that I impacted in the interim before I knew better. Um, but I do think that there's a way that we can do this sooner, obviously with teacher prep programs, but there are a massive number of teachers out there in the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. force now um, and how we can impact them. But um, yeah, I, I'm curious as to what you're, what you're thinking in terms of that. Yeah, yeah no, I, and what you just said is really so true. I mean, I, I hear that from teachers all the time, you know, why didn't I know this? And I feel, I feel so guilty because mm-hmm. of all the kids I've taught and I've taught them in ways that aren't the most effective ways to teach them. And so the first thing I think we have to remember is, and this is from an article that um, was in Ed Week, I don't know, almost two years ago. It's, you know, we, this is a no blame, no shame zone, right? We just have, as and the authors of this article said, we just have unfinished work around literacy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first thing we all have to remember that the majority of us weren't taught this in our teacher preparation program, right? So we have to kind of let go of that and move forward from there. And so, so when you ask, what do I see or what do I hear from teachers? Part of that is, you know, this kind of regret, you know, why didn't I know this? Um, the other thing that I think is, is important to remember is that, you know, the science of reading is not, you know, an, an ideology. It's not a fad. It's not a political agenda. You know, it's not a specific component like phonics. You know, it's this, it's this body of evidence that really can point the way for instruction. And if I remember that, then actually it's very empowering Mm -hmm. because it becomes the litmus test for the choices I make in the classroom every day. You know, am I going to do this or am I going to do that? And when I think about online teaching or hybrid teaching, the, the laser focus, you know, that we have to have, especially in a virtual environment, in terms of what we teach or don't, you know, I know, we, have I know. To, we have to be very, very laser focused. And so this body of evidence actually, um, I believe, is really empowering because it helps us create that, um, you know, that kind of what do we know, you know, and what does it, what does it point us to do? Now, I will say, though, that one of the hardest things for practitioners to do is give up practices that may not fit within that evidence-aligned, you know, category. And the reason that's hard, I think, and I understand this completely, is because, you know, teachers have practices that they that they love and that they cherish and that they've seen work with kids. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what we try to think about is, okay, you're right. You know, this is something you feel comfortable with. You've done it for years and it has worked for kids, but it hasn't cast the widest swath around the most number of children. And does it have the highest utility, you know? So I think that's one of the things that we're always, you know, asking ourselves. So, so, you know, what we're trying to do is, is really say, you know, what do we know at the Reading League? What do we know? How can we elevate that? And how can we translate that to practice? Um, and I do think, you know, one of the most kind of intractable, um, I guess I would say, methodologies is, has been the balanced literacy mm-hmm. model. And because, you know, who balance that sounds great doesn't it who doesn't like balance you know <laughs> a, ba- yeah, a balanced <laughs> diet right that's a good thing right so um but I think again we have to we have to just examine 
the organization of our practice, the lessons that we deliver, the methodology that we use, and say, well, is this aligned with the evidence? Because if not, it's probably not the highest utility practice that's casting the widest swath around the most number of children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about that a bit uh, with the Right to Read Project gals on a pod, previous podcast. And, yes. Yeah, and they shared, you know, really 95 to 98% of students can learn to read when we use science of reading evidence-based practices. And of course, that would mean that we would have the materials, <laughs> the high-quality materials, and that would mean that we have the um, high-quality professional learning to go along with that. Um, so, you know, just putting all of that out there as the caveat, but I love how you're saying that as cast the widest net, because I think that it's easy to say, well, these kids are getting it. It's, and then mm-hmm. what is going on with these other kids, but it's not the kids. And, you know, I think that that's where we really, it's so hard to turn inward and see that, that it, yeah. it really is a change of practice in an adult action and, and in lots of adult actions that, that are, um, asking to happen. So <laughs> I agree. Hard. And, and, and I, I kind of call it the promise and the peril, right? The promise is that we can teach virtually all of our kids to read. Um, the peril is that it, ca- it does cause us, like you said, to look inward because if something's not working, you know, we kind of have two choices. Either it's not working because we have, and that we, and we have to own that and we have to change instruction or we blame the kids, you know, and that's not okay. You know, we can't do that. We can't blame the, I I say, we can't blame the clientele, right? (laughs) Right. So, you know, we have to think about, okay, what can I do differently? And I think part of it has been, it's, it's a change in focus. A lot of, you know, we're very, we're very focused at the Reading League on helping all teachers and say, you know, these practices, these explicit systematic practices aren't just for tier two and tier three. This is for tier one, right? And so let's think about, you know, we're not going to wait for failure. You know, we're not going to wait for kids to fail and then deliver this type of instruction. We're going to deliver this instruction to everybody, Mm -hmm. um, knowing that, yes, there will be some kids who need more repetition, more intensity, more time, more focus. But how uh, how do we look at a preventative model rather than an intervention model. And I always just tell my own story, you know, because I, and I think stories matter. I really do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so thank you for naming that too. It is tier one and yes, it's it's the baseline. Mm -hmm. I mean, it should be the baseline. Like that's what kids deserve. And so let's, Mm -hmm. let's start giving them what they deserve on the first go round rather than waiting for them to fail and then trying to give them what they deserve in a way that's remediation or mm-hmm. they're already struggling. So let's, mm-hmm. let's get them, let's get them going. Tell us your story though. I'm well, excited. I was just gonna, yeah. And I, was, <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I always tell my own story because, you know, um, you know, again, I've, I've been this a long time so I can tell my, you know, <laughs> my fall stories <laughs> took a big fall. Um, but I think it's a mind shift, right? Because I know that when I first started out as a teacher, I thought, you know, here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's the instruction, right? And it's just natural that some of the kids aren't going to get it. It's just normal. Yeah. Some of the kids aren't going to get it. And they're going to go, and I'm, I just, I'm so, I hate to even admit this, but they're going to go somewhere else to get it. You know, somebody's going to take them into the remediation 
room or right. whatever it might be, you know, some specialist who knows way more than I do, you know, is going to take them somewhere mm-hmm. and fill those gaps. So that thinking was, and I can say this, it was not right thinking on my part. What I also realized that I didn't know is I didn't understand how do children learn to read, right? I think I taught around reading. You know, Mm -hmm. I taught activities around reading, but I didn't teach children to read. Mm -hmm. And I think that requires us to understand, and we know so much more, right? From And that's a part of this whole evidence base, you know, from the neuroscience especially. We know this predictable progression of development that kids go through as readers. So as a teacher, if I understand that, then I can support an instructional methodology and sequence and system that matches that and, and, got, and leads it along, right? You know, instruction guides the development along. And how do we then make sure that our teachers are getting that understanding? And when we do that in the pre, in the, in, at the in-service level, teachers go, what? You know, so how do we do that at the pre-service level? So that teachers come out of teacher preparation programs saying, I understand the process of learning to read, and I understand instruction that is going to support that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we bring this up all the time. <laughs> why, why didn't we learn this in mm-hmm. undergrad? Why didn't we learn this in our master's program? Mm-hmm. And why is it still not being taught in those places? Yeah. I know you don't have the answer to that, Laura. Well, just- <laughs> but I, 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 well, I kind of, I, I do have ideas. <laughs> but but I will them. say, we need to quit beating ourselves up over that, right? Because I, yeah. I you know, one of the things that um, I think is really important is that, you know, that, that Maya Angelou phrase, when we know better, we do better. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. You don't know what you don't know. So when you know something, you change your actions. And that applies to life in general, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think too, like what it makes me think of is when I learned about the science of reading and, and I start, it, the pieces started to come together like a puzzle, I, like in hindsight, I, am, I really was open to learning and I, I didn't make an excuse... I acknowledged that I didn't learn it in college. I acknowledged that I didn't learn it as in my master's program. I acknowledged that I didn't learn it when I uh, went through my ad- admin one program to become a school leader. So right there, totaling about 10 years of schooling yeah. over the course of, you know, doing all of that work. I acknowledged it, but I didn't let that stop me as an excuse. And I think that that's the important thing is like all of us are here because we're like, we didn't, it's not an excuse. And, you know, I think that the, the teachers and the, the administrators listening are listening to this podcast because they want to learn. Mm-hmm. I know that's why I listen to podcasts, you know, to be mm-hmm. entertained, to, to learn. Um, but I, I, I hope that, you know, in their journey, they're also finding kind of solace in the fact that we're all in this together. We're all knowing better and doing better mm-hmm. and we're not using it as an excuse. And that's what I think the powerful part is, is that we're putting our stake in the ground and we're saying, hey, mm-hmm. this is the science we know better and we're going to do it. And mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. like that, I feel like it's so empowering. It's it's yeah. an empowering step versus a hindering step. I, I totally agree. It really is. And and I think we have to, you know, one thing I try to do is just acknowledge where people are, right? And kind of help people help meet people where they are because that's 
that was what was helpful to me in my you know in my own journey in my whole career in education having people that meet me where i am and mentor me along and support me on my growth steps that's what i think is important and what you mentioned is right on there's a there is a support network out there now um which i think is really really empowering you know i was going to mention too um you know i came up during the years where it was all whole language and it wasn't, this was pre-balanced literacy, right? It was yeah. all whole language. And, um, you know, and so that was what I knew. And I really embraced that because I, this is, you know, it's what I was taught. And, and it's also kind of was my experience. I'm one of those, you know, I was one of those children that I don't remember explicitly learning how to read. It just kind of, I think, you know, happened over time through immersion and modeling and experience. Um, so you were so one of, of the it, lucky ones. I was one of the lucky ones. But, and, and that, so that, that made sense to me, right? right. Um, so I had to, you know, again, have a, you know, a shift. And my shift really came when I started really working um, in school districts where we had a lot of students who were falling through the cracks. And this was a, a crisis because, again, you can't, you can't just blame the clientele. You can't say, oh, gosh, well, you know, we have 80% of our kids not reading at grade level. Must be their problem. Must be their fault. Must be the parents' fault. Must be, you know, pick one, blame them. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, really wrestling that to the ground, um, I think, is critically important. Just, and that's what we as teachers do, right? I mean, our, we, we, all have this, we all have the goal you know, of student success and student thriving and student flourishing. And, and so how do we wrestle that really to the ground? And that takes a, a bit of uh, well, I'm going to tell you what it takes. So I, I had the pleasure of interviewing or not interviewing, but having a conversation with Parker Palmer in my podcast. And he said, you know, there's an intersection between chutzpah and humility. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> teaching, it has to, you know, has to be the intersection between chutzpah and humility. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And true. Absolutely. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking mm-hmm. too, Lara, about, I mean, you just reminded me of, you know, so many things I used to do when I was teaching where I taught secondary, but middle school. And, um, you know, I just, I was trying to make a really lovely environment for my kids where they just love to read and getting all these books for them that they loved. And like, that was going to be my way to get them mm-hmm. right to, mm-hmm. and, and most of them were, you know, behind yeah. grade level, probably struggling with fluency still probably struggling mm-hmm. some still with even decoding. Yeah. Um, but that's all I knew was to like get them to love reading. <laughs> yeah. Um, you well, know what I'm? Yeah, Melissa, and God bless you because I'm sure if you were working with middle school and high school with children, that think about those students had 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 cycle upon cycle upon cycle upon cycle of failure. Which you know I always say failure eats bandwidth. So the longer we let this failure go on, the less cognitive, you know, space really that they have to kind of. To kind of deal with that, um, yeah. and but that was kind of that was kind of the way you know. Like I think about again, my whole language upbringing was really about okay. If I just immerse them in print, yeah. let them explore, model my own reading behaviors, mm-hmm. that this is somehow going to magically happen. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. I remember. I mean, I taught high school my first two years of teaching. And then I went back and taught elementary because I was like, what is going on at the elementary level? Like, kids can't read. And <laughs> what are you doing down there? What's going on? So I went down and, and taught elementary. But um, I remember sitting in 
second grade in high school, it didn't matter, holding a book and modeling me reading. And I was like, oh my gosh, how silly that that's what I thought would. I mean, but that, that was what we did. Um, So I'm wondering how can practice transform belief systems? And one of like, what is making me think about all of this? And in our pre-call, I really had thought about that question in terms of Mm -hmm. just teachers or just leaders. But now I'm thinking about it in terms after this conversation with you, Lara, of students as well. Because Mm -hmm. as you said, like students in middle and high school, uh, their belief system is that they they can't learn to read, that they're yeah. bad readers, because that yeah. those are the experiences and practices that they've had over time. So I'm curious, how can practice transform belief systems for really all of the stakeholders involved? Yeah, yeah, and I and I do, you know, I when I first came into the work in staff development and the work around you know evidence based practices, it was really around the the, the National Reading Panel time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did have this, I, I think I held, uh, held this belief myself that we had to transform belief in order to transform practice. Um, but what I've really come to understand is practice can, practice in itself can transform an underlying belief. And many of us need that practice to show us mm-hmm. with our students how powerful a particular methodology or an instructional um, approach can be. So that's where, and I think we mentioned this earlier, that's where stories really come into play. Um, One of the most powerful things is when a teacher um, can have a safe place in which to to talk through all this, right? But hear other people's stories about success and about transformation. Mm -hmm. And when the person who talks about her own transformation can have that, you know, humility to say, this is where I was, this is where I am now, but look at what it did for my students. So sharing those stories, and that's why, you know, a podcast like yours is really important because we're sharing those stories. The other thing I was going to say about, you know, when I used to think that we had to change our belief system in order to really transform our practice, um, there's too much of an urgency to wait for that, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, sometimes I, I just say to teachers, you know, if this feels like the elephant, you know, just bite off a piece. I mean, that's that's really what you need to do is is bite off a piece of the elephant. And when we can help you do that, that's where that's you know, reading league support and support from other organizations can really help do that. The one disconnect that I see quite a bit is even if a teacher has built her knowledge base, if she goes back into her school or back into her district and they are using a resource or a program or a curriculum that doesn't align with that knowledge base, that's one of the, that's one of the biggest um, disconnects and one of the biggest sources of disequilibrium for a teacher, right? Like when you go through a, an, inten- an intensive professional development, like let's say letters, and you come out of your letters training, you're, you're, you're transformed, right? Your, your yep. belief has transformed, <laughs> but then you get back into your school and they're like, here's your materials and materials don't jive, you know, or, or the school curriculum doesn't jive with what you've learned. So you've been empowered to change your belief system, but then your practice stalls that out. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. It comes to a head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of one of my um, best friends from college who is, she, she and I went through our teacher prep program together 
for all of our undergrad and um, still really good friends today. And she left teaching for a while to be a stay-at-home mom. And she came back this year, which what, what a year to come back. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yikes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, she is, you know, obviously we're good friends. So I talk a lot about this stuff with her. And so she's transforming her practice through reading and learning and talking with me Mm -hmm. about a lot of this stuff in the science of reading. But in the county where she works there, they've got no curriculum. Um, The only curriculum that they've really truly adapted is like a very small sliver of a phonics curriculum and everything else is just completely like cherry picked self-created by that district um and she said it is so challenging because she knows what's right to do Mm -hmm. but it's hard to actually actually execute it in a Mm -hmm. way that makes sense in a way that's not I mean quite honestly going to kill her for 23 hours of the day you know to to be doing all this stuff um Mm -hmm. that she's gather I mean how can mm-hmm. I, it's just an impossible job to to do when you don't have the materials right. or the, the professional learning that go along with it exactly and I think um and the support network and mm-hmm. um you know one of the things we're trying to do at the reading league in that defining movement is engage all stakeholders and to say and because we are all stakeholders right like you know um you know, Joe community member, he's a stakeholder in ensuring that the the children in his community grow up to be literate citizens to Mm -hmm. then contribute back to the community or become, you know, thriving, you know, um, employees in a business in that community. And, Mm -hmm. you know, higher education, they're huge stakeholders in this. Absolutely. You know, one of the things, this is, I'd love to get your thought on this, Laura. Mm -hmm. Melissa and I were talking about the fact that higher ed Um, doesn't really have that we know of uh, some sort of connective tissue between like, for example, the college that is up the street for me doesn't have a connection to the college that is in Mm -hmm. another state in terms of education. Mm -hmm. Like if you went to every state has different um, qualifications Mm -hmm. for their programming. And then also we're kind of doing a disservice to teachers by having a million different like certification processes and Mm, uh, (laughs) like, I don't even know the words to say it because there's so much going on. Like if you, if I moved to Pennsylvania, I would have to get recertified in three different areas. If I moved to Texas, I might have to get, they might only accept two of my certifications yet. I have a collegiate degree from Maryland in. So and it how many of them require sense. science of reading at all? Well, yeah. Yeah. Not many. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you look at the, if you look at the, you know, the IDA standards and look at the schools, college of education that they have endorsed, it's a, it's a small list. Or if you look at the NCTQ report, yeah. you know, it's a relatively small mm-hmm. list. Um, yeah. Although I will say the last NCTQ report said that there has been, there has been growth in that area, but it's very, very slow growth. And you, yeah. you pinpoint there's no consistency from what, for even within a state, right? The university, right, right. much less within the nation, but then also even within the school itself. Um, I had, I had an interesting conversation with the Dean of a college of ed of, of the university of which I will not name, but um, I asked her, you know, how do you teach your, um, your teachers to teach your candidates about reading and how do they learn about how children learn to read? And, and I will say she seemed puzzled by the question. So mm-hmm. I tried to kind of reword it to, to get to the essence of what is the through line that all your students as teacher candidates are learning? 
And essentially, she said, every instructor, professor has the freedom to to really instruct on whatever methodology or instructional approach um, that they believe is is important is valid. And uh, you know, and her justification for that was to say that, well, you know, we just don't know. Our teacher candidates, you know, when they get out of college, we don't know what kind of a school or program they're going to be in, involved in. So we just need to give them this all this you know, broad smattering, you know, dips into different instructional approaches and methodologies and materials because we just don't know where they're going to go. Um, so again, that, that, that idea of a through line, that idea of understanding how children learn to read is such a missing link, right? And, and, that the, and of course, the through line of what is scientifically based, yeah, what that's what I was going to say. It makes me space. think of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And this reminds yeah, what, me, Laura, of something you said when we talked earlier about like the science seeming like cold and, mm, uh, you know, intimidating versus yeah. teaching that feels organic and lovely. And we want it to just be, you know, yeah. feel good with our kids and, and, and how those two things don't always, you know, come yeah, together. Yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's an impression. And, and this is, of course, an impression um, yeah. That, that yeah, that yep. science is 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 a hard science is doesn't really deal with um, a relational profession like teaching, mm-hmm. um, and that yes, teaching is more an emotional practice, and how do we continue to nurture nurture our children? Um, and so science kind of seems opposed to that. Um, you know, do we, if I adopt the science of reading, does that mean I can't be creative? Mm-hmm. Does that mean I can't follow my intuition when I'm working with my children? Um, and I, you know, I think it's important that we bust that myth. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> that, that, that science, sure. You know, the science of reading is about, <laughs> is, it's about your knowledge, teacher. It's yes. about your knowledge base yes. so that when you go to follow your intuition, you know, your intuition is based on what you know about how children learn to read and what instruction needs to look like. Um, I also think there's just misconception. So that's, that's a misconception just in general, mm-hmm. I think, about the science. And, and it's intimidating, right? And I've heard teachers say, well, you know, I was never good at science. That's right. Yes. You know, like as if somehow that precludes them, you know. Um, but I also think, you know, there's a, again, a, a perception, not, not among everyone, of course, but a perception that the science of reading is all about phonics, you know, or it's all about, right. just, it's just about the Correct. foundational skills <laughs> and it's all about drill and kill. Um, and, you know, that somehow just giving kids explicit systematic instruction is going to, you know, drill and kill them. And right. uh, of course, Anita Archer talks so eloquently about this, you know, about the importance of explicit instruction for everybody. Um, and, but I always just like to think about kids in general, you know, kids, they want to come to school to learn to read and write. You know, they want to unlock the squiggly lines on the page. Mm-hmm. When we unveil, you know, we open up that curtain and unveil the mystery of that, it's delightful for them. They're, oh, yeah. you know, it's delightful. And kids who, you know, go through the grades and then we're, we're not unlocking that code for them, they become increasingly frustrated because that's what they want to be able to do. And, and I always say, you can't love what you can't do. Mm-hmm. So, in, right. you know, building kids' love of reading has to involve teaching them how to read. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the, the struggle in that is that they're, that, 
there is an implication there when you bring the science part in that there's a right way to do it mm-hmm. and a quote wrong way to do it. And I, in my brain, as I'm talking with people outside of this podcast, I, I kind of liken it to like riding a bike. Like really there is only one way to learn how to do that. You need to, you can't learn how to ride a bike without the bike, without pedaling. I mean, there's a right way to learn how to do that. Um, you can't ride backwards, right? You can't push the pedals backwards. Um, but it, it, when we kind of take that same idea and we apply it to, to reading, like there is a right and a wrong way. If I'm teaching you how to ride a bike and I want to be creative, I might have my little one ride on grass so that when they fall, that, you know, and, but you, Laura, might um, know that your child is a little more stability, a better balance, and they're okay to, to ride on some concrete or the sidewalk. And Melissa might actually choose a different kind of bike that maybe doesn't have pedals at first and then gets pedals later so that baby Elliot can like begin to learn the practice of um, core strength and balance and then learn how to ride and manipulate those pedals. So to me, like those are the scaffolded elements that happen within the quote scientific practice of learning how to ride a bike. But there really is only one way at the end of the day to learn how to ride that bike. And it's, it is like reading there. I mean, this really is a, a scientific practice that we know we're, we're wiring our brain and it is, it is hard to ask folks to relearn what they've already learned the wrong way. You know, it's so true. I, I think, yeah. And I, you brought up so many good points. I mean, one of the things is when you think about right, the skills to ride a bike are the same. You know, you have to be able mm-hmm. to balance, steer, pedal. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one book that I think should be mandatory reading for every teacher is Stanislaus de Haan's How We Learn. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, this is how the human being learns. And, and just understanding the process of learning, you know, we've talked a lot about the process of learning to read, but yep. the process of learning mm-hmm. and, you know, how we need explicit instruction. We need practice. We need distributed practice. Um, I think that's kind of a, a maybe a missing link, too. When we think about the science of learning to read, are we addressing reading as well as the science of learning? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's really the science of learning the science of reading, and the art of teaching. You know, how do we bring all that together um, so that, again, it's all about empowering teachers. How do we empower teachers to have the knowledge around the science of learning, the knowledge around the science of reading, and how, do, how does she hone her craft? And what you said, you know, there's, that's, that's where the creativity, that's where the, um, you know, the uniqueness of her can come in. And I just have to put a you know, plug in for that too. You know, how do we become our best, most authentic selves so that we're bringing that chutzpah and humility you know, into the classroom <laughs> in a way that that's what, that is that, that authenticity of ourselves as humans in the classroom, that's where the relationship is built. And that's where the, the um, that's where the art of teaching, I think, really culminates. Yeah. Oh, I think that that's a perfect place to ask you to leave our listeners with a piece of advice. Oh, yeah, sure, of course. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> again, you know, as a as a woman of a certain age, I have a lot of advice <laughs> willing to dispense. But go ahead. Um, Okay, so I'm, yeah, you know, <laughs> your, give us your best best piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is where my kids would be rolling their eyes right now. But um, 
Okay. So, so yeah. So I think I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. And one is as a, with my teacher hat on and one is with my, you know, um, wise woman hat on. So, Perfect. Uh, which I'm assuming that I'm going to wear, but doesn't mean I, doesn't mean I qualify, <laughs> but I'm just going to go there. So, um, you know, I, I, I think teachers, I really want teachers to to know, you know, teaching is challenging. It takes mm-hmm. stamina, patience, you know, fortitude, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the relentless commitment to the students. And so my advice on that is to seek out support, seek, seek out the yeah. support of others. You know, we're human. We need connection. We need community. And find those people, find those organizations that support you, um, who will lift you up and who you can have those safe conversations in a risk-free, no judgment zone. You know, teaching, when I say risk-free, I, I think that's really important to help nurture our own, you know, chutzpah and humility. Mm-hmm. Um, teaching is about taking risks and you need a soft place to fall and you need a support network which, who will prop you up. And you also need a cheering section that's going to root mm-hmm. you on. So find that community. And, and, you know, I encourage people to join us, join the Reading League. We are that community of, of support. Um, the other advice I would give is, you know, give yourself some grace. Give yourself grace. I know teachers, we talked about this earlier, parents, children mm-hmm. right now are being asked to do more than ever. We're being asked to be more adaptable than ever. Um, you know, let's breathe. Let's remember that even when we feel like we've had a bad day or a bad lesson, every moment we spend connecting with a student is a moment connecting with another human being. And that little human being cherishes that connection. Um, so give yourself grace, you know, give yourself permission to fail, give yourself, give yourself the same grace you would give to those you love. Yeah, I like that. Lovely. (laughs) We are so grateful that you, we are very grateful that you came and talked to us today. And I want to give you a quick moment to plug your podcast as well as quick question (laughs) before we wrap. Dusty and Dot, what channel? Do you have a channel? Oh, you know what? That's going to be, it's going to be through WCNY, which is a central New York, but I I don't really, I don't have any more information for you on that. I'm sorry. No, no, Um, we'll update as you do. Let me know. Yes, I will. I need to find it for Elliot one day. I know. Yes. Oh my God, it'd be perfect. Um, And yes, I'm sorry I don't have um, that right on the, on the tip of my tongue here for, to give you. So um, yeah, but, but check us out, you know, go down our website, www.thereadingleague.org. More updates will be available there. Follow us on social media media follow us on instagram facebook twitter more information is available um and we're always you know we're always uh delving into new arenas like i mentioned the defining movement that's its own separate website i encourage people to go to that website which is um what is the science of reading.org please yep. join that movement we'll i also want it. to mention please join the reading league there's no cost to be a member and we you know we want to be really nationwide internationally strong so so join us because there's there's power in community and there's power in uh simply being in that in that um you know in that safe space to explore and learn we're always adding to our knowledge base um i i really encourage people to check out the online academy that i shared 
I think that's really important. So we've got a lot going on and please follow us. Um, yeah. And I did want to mention, yes, I'll, I'll give a shout out to my podcast. Yeah. What, yeah. what um, tell, tell everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So it's called teaching and teaching, reading and learning the TRL podcast, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and it's just been the, the, one of the greatest privileges of my life to be able to speak to David Kilpatrick, Louisa Motes, Emily Hanford, um, Tim Shanahan. I did an episode with Maria Murray and Dreen Cook from the Reading League talking about the origins of the Reading League. And I, I actually had someone email me and say that, you know, despite all the expertise of the, the people, the esteemed people that I had interviewed before, they loved that one because it showed them the power of a grassroots movement. And yeah. so Doreen and Maria talk about the Reading League's grassroots movement. Oh, that's great. And then the one that's going to launch next, uh, well, in a couple of days here, is um, a woman named Jessica Pasek. And she is a teacher. She's a reading specialist. And so she's going to share, you know, kind of her transformation story. And she'll also, because she's kind of boots on the ground, she's going to be able to talk about how important it is that we, you know, we have community. And she's mm-hmm. going to talk about what, what factors make a difference in a school's transformation story and what sort of culture has to be in a school um, for that transformation to happen. So that's pretty exciting. Um, And then I mentioned earlier that I have Parker Palmer, um, who is going to be um, launching soon, that's this spring. And also I have um, in the can, ready to go, Anita Archer. (laughs) And oh, nice. Art, I know. And she is just like a, she's a dynamo. I mean, what, what can I say? I mean, she, you know, Anita Archer people. <laughs> hello. Um, it is pretty- so fun listening to podcasts. Cause I feel like when I'm done listening, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like I know you now and I, yep. because I've, you know, I've interviewed you, but I, when I li- just listen to podcasts while I'm running and stuff, I'm like, Ooh, I feel like I know like uh, Maria mm-hmm. and Pam Snow were interviewed yes. on the Amplified po- yes, podcast. Exactly. I'm like, Oh, let me go follow them on Twitter. Now I know them. It does <laughs> feel like you have a window into, or a door into their life. Like I it's totally really agree. amazing. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm like you, I, I, you know, I listen to a podcast when I'm walking or if I'm in the car. And so it seems like a very accessible way to get mm-hmm. to know to get to know uh, people. So I'm really excited about these, these conversations, just yeah, like sure. I was really excited to come on with you today and have a conversation <laughs> because the more we're talking, the more we're getting the word out, the more we're supporting one another, the stronger this movement's going to be and the more teachers and the more children um, will be impacted by it. For so, sure. so thank you for, here, for, here. for, for <laughs> the work that you do and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, thank you. you. I just became a member of the Reading League while we were talking. Why, thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that multitasking moment, Melissa. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Laura, and we will talk soon. Thank you again. You bet. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.